Proposed changes to legal immigration here in the U.S. that would especially affect the poor. We'll take a look at the possible impacts on today's Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm Laura Rice in for David Brown. President Trump has signed the largest VA budget ever, what the money is going towards and where it's coming from. We'll head to Sonora, Texas, where unprecedented flooding has damaged hundreds of homes. And we'll hear how Texas waterways, when not causing the damage like in that city, can provide access to parts of the state that are otherwise off limits. Plus, why Laredo City officials have found themselves in a tough position when it comes to the border wall. That's on today's Texas Standard. All right, here we go. This is the Texas Standard for Tuesday, September 25th. I'm Laura Rice in for David Brown. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've got some internal business to get to in just a minute. But first, Sunday night, the Department of Homeland Security released a proposed rule to overhaul how the government determines which immigrants could be considered a public charge. That means that immigrants who use public benefits like Medicaid, food stamps and housing benefits could see their green card applications in jeopardy. Joining me now is Carolina Canizales, Texas campaigns strategist with the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. Carolina, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you so much for having me on. So let's do a quick recap of this proposed regulation. Who would it target specifically? So as we know, the Trump administration did an announcement on a potential new rule on public charge. So what this means that it will deny green cards to legal immigrants if they or their dependents have received any government assistance. So this is like a broad, you know, group of folks that it could impact. Um, and immigrants can be denied so-called lawful permanent residency if they receive certain government benefits, such as uh, some health assistance, some housing assistance, mm. and if the government anticipates that they may do so in the future. Would this also be things like food stamps or, or that sort of thing? We don't have the list yet, uh, but what we do have is a chance to make a public comment on it. The uh, government is giving 60 days for organizations to give a public comment about this new rule. And the ILRC, along with many other national organizations, are going to take this opportunity to say, this is really intense. You know, this could really impact not just the legality of it all, but uh, it's targeting, you know, poor people of color, poor single women that need to stay healthy, that need to have access to nutrition programs, and so do their children. Um, so we believe it's putting lives at risk because they're going to force people to, you know, decide whether they mm -hmm. want to stay healthy and get assistance versus they want to get citizenship in the future or residency in the future. Have there been rules previously regarding these so-called public charges? Yes. So this is a rule about, I would say, 2001. Mm -hmm. It's something that's been existing when people that are legal permanent residents that want to apply to citizenship or people that have some type of legal status that can then apply for residency. There was this public charge where if the government decided or thought that these persons were going to be a burden, you know, mm. to the American public or to the services of the government, they could face, you know, not getting residency. 
However, it was not as specific, right? It was a case by case basis. And it was not as specific as like, if you get, you know, all these types of assistance, you're not going to you know, be able to legalize, right? And and the move will mainly affect legal immigrants and their families because undocumented folks, as you know, are not eligible for any of these federal benefits. So I think people could be confused right now, right? Like mm. who does it actually impact right. when we're thinking about legal immigrants, which is a bunch. And I think we've we've seen this from this government, very specific, very targeted immigration rules or laws or executive orders. You mentioned your organization is going to be taking advantage of this 60-day comment period. What would your recommendation be to families that would be affected by this new change? So again, in this 60-day period, they're not implementing the new rule. So for these 60 days, people are still safe in getting some of these benefits that I mentioned earlier. I know a lot of folks are going to, you know, be scared and try and quit these programs, you know. Mm. However, if you have a child in need of the services or if yourself are in need of the services and it's like a life dependency, a life um, sort of issue that you need to continue to get, get, I would say stay with it until we know that the rule is going to be an implementation, you know. So I think in the 60 days, people should stay the way they are but start getting information on public charge, you know, start reading. I know a lot of organizations are putting literature out there for people to understand and digest what would this mean. Um, But I think for the 60 days, people can still live their lives like they were doing. And if we do see a rule come out, um, we hope that we can make a difference and it's not the exact same draft that is up for review right now. Um, And we are going to fight so that it's not and hopefully in 60 days, we can minimize um, some of those services so that people can continue to get some of those services and not get blocked from all of it. Carolina Canizales is Texas Campaign's strategist with the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. Carolina, thank you again. Thank you so much for having me on. take another few minutes now to turn the spotlight inward. It's uncomfortable and awkward for the Texas Standard to be part of a news story that we find important to bring to your attention, but that's the position we find ourselves in and we're doing our best to be transparent. As we first told you last week, Texas Standard and the show's home station, KUT and KUTX Austin, have been both publicly and privately addressing personnel and general cultural issues that go back several years. Yesterday, KUT, KUTX staff were told Interim General Manager Patty Smith was resigning effective October 8th. KUT, KUTX Associate General Manager for Development and Marketing, Sylvia Ponce Carson, will take over as Interim General Manager. While this may seem to you as irrelevant background information, we're sharing it with you because an article by an independent investigative reporter hired by the KUT newsroom in reporting this management change also made public an issue affecting Texas Standard host David Brown. I, Laura Rice, am filling in as host today because the Texas Standard team, under the leadership of managing producer Rhonda Fanning, decided that if David was named again in an investigation, he would not host the show on the day the show addressed the issue. The new issue raised in the latest article by the KUT Independent Investigation is some raw recorded tape before the start of an interview in which the reporter describes David Brown as joking about the Spanish language. I should say here that Texas Standard has decided, at least for now, not to play clips of the tape. It's long and for full context should be evaluated in its entirety. 
we do not have plans at this moment to release that full tape. Texas Standard Managing Producer Rhonda Fanning forwarded it to Human Resources as soon as it was brought to her attention. In response, David Brown issued a statement to all of KUT and KUTX and one of its media partners, the Texas Tribune. I'll read here part of David's statement. We'll post the full text at texasstandard.org. Taken out of its context, I can easily hear how what I said could be misunderstood as me mocking Spanish-speaking people. I remain embarrassed that my own voice in this recording could be construed, especially by colleagues I deeply admire, as disrespectful either of the language or, worse yet, of those who speak it. To those who have heard the tape or portions of it and drawn such, such a conclusion, I profoundly and sincerely apologize and want to assure you that was not my meaning." End quote. Our plan today here for Texas Standard was to do a sit-down interview with KUT Managing Editor Matt Largie, who hired the independent investigative reporter. We hoped to have him help us bring to light why KUT decided to pursue this investigation as a magazine that reports on public media was already following the story about past newsroom and Texas Standard leadership. We had also planned to ask him about how and why the spotlight in the newsroom's independent investigation had turned from that former leader to her husband, current Texas Standard host David Brown. But current newsroom leadership declined to talk to us. We were also only referred to statements in request for interviews from incoming interim general manager Sylvia Ponce Carson and the dean of the Moody College of Communication, where KUT and KUTX are a department. So instead of what we hoped would be a transparent interview, I'm here with some statements. Ponce Carson says this in the wake of yesterday's leadership change. I am committed to working with the dean to identify and address our issues with culture and operations. KUT and KUTX are an invaluable part of the Central Texas community, and I am honored to advance this important public service until a permanent general manager is appointed. And Dean Jay Bernhardt said this. Sylvia has been at KUT for many years, and I deeply value and respect her leadership and expertise. And I do want to note that while the Texas Standard team chose today to ask David Brown not to host so that we could more properly address the situation, he has not in any way been officially disciplined for these allegations. Investigations remain open, and Texas Standard remains committed to being transparent to you about what is happening. All right. That sound means it's time to shift gears a little and look at the talk of Texas. Are we shifting gears? No, well, we're, we're not shifting gears terribly. <laughs> we're not shifting gears okay. terribly far, Laura. Uh, obviously, this is a difficult issue that we're trying to navigate with transparency here at The Standard. And quite honestly, we are in uncharted waters. Mm. I mean, simply to recap, our general manager left, knowing that this reporting was coming. Our interim leadership, which, to be fair, didn't know about all of this, has resigned. KUT, which commissioned the ongoing independent reporting into these allegations, won't comment, and our friends and listeners have noticed another conspicuous absence, that of our usual host, David Brown, who has apologized in a lengthy emailed statement, but has yet to address any of the broader issues uh, going on here. I just want to say, Laura, that the people that produce Texas Standard, the 10 women and three men on staff that do the work of booking, writing, producing, editing, and sharing this program every workday, we've We've basically been left to fend for ourselves, and it's a situation that none of us want to be in, and it's made for a lot of sleepless nights and soul-searching. Mm. And I would uh, simply like to note that our first dedication going forward will always be to our listeners and trying to operate with transparency and integrity going forward. It's my sincere hope that we have more to tell our listeners about these developments, and soon 
Until then, I can share some of the conversation these developments have inspired. On the KUT Austin Facebook page, I see an optimistic comment from one listener, Reagan Manning. He says, I appreciate the transparency and hope further steps are taken to address these issues. It sounds like there are some long-time staffing mistakes that need to be corrected. If they aren't, it will only damage the strong reputation the Texas Standard and KUT has built over the years. One comment from the KUT Austin Facebook page, and we've also, again, in the spirit of full transparency, shared the links to all this uh, stuff online on our Facebook Mm -hmm. page, on Twitter, and uh, wherever fine social media is served. I'll be back with more uh, more comments, (coughs) concerns, and uh, other issues from listeners later in the show. We welcome your thoughts, your opinions. Hey, a pat on the bat would be nice. Pat on the bat. Thanks so much. Bye. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. Business and your money on The Standard. I'm Laura Rice, in for David Brown. University of Texas researchers say there's no link between natural gas fracking and elevating levels of methane found in some North Texas water wells. A recent study found that most underground wells in the Dallas-Fort Worth area had little or no methane, except for one cluster that did have abnormally high levels of the gas. Researchers found the methane, a type of natural gas, got into the wells by naturally migrating upward from deeper rock formations. UT says past studies have concluded the same. A leader of the study says the research doesn't rule out the possibility of isolated contamination from fracking, and separate research from Stanford University has found evidence of that happening in Pennsylvania and North Texas from things like faulty industry infrastructure and gas leaks. Texas regulators have dismissed the Stanford research as not rigorous enough. Meanwhile, federal funding is soon set to run out on what industry experts call a crucial safety net program for Texas farmers, the Farm Bill. Texas Public Radio's Ryan Poppy reports the latest development in Washington hinges on legislation that mandates stricter requirements for certain food stamp recipients in the program now known as SNAP. It's the Farm Bill that provides the federal funding for a crop insurance program that pays out farmers when they lose a crop to natural disasters like wildfires and droughts in parts of West Texas, or flooding rains and wind related to hurricane-like storms in the Texas Gulf. Sean Wade, Director of Policy Analysis and Research with the Plains Cotton Growers Incorporated, says these crop insurance programs are extremely vital, but they can only do so much. You know, the thing to remember about crop insurance, it's not necessarily a, a program that's going to make a producer 100% whole in the event of a loss. Most policies do not kick in until a farm or ranch has experienced a 25 to 50% loss of a crop or herd. Still, without that money, Wade says impacted farmers have no way of making up their loss and plan for the next crop. But in order to extend the federal crop insurance program, Congress must first reach a compromise regarding another aspect of the bill, addressing the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP, formerly known as the Food Stamps Program. 
A provision of the bill by Texas Republican Congressman Mike Conway would require all able-bodied adults receiving SNAP benefits to document that they've worked at least 20 hours or completed job training before they can receive any benefits, and that isn't sitting well with congressional Democrats. The deadline for Congress to pass a farm bill out of both chambers and have the president sign off on it is September 30th. I'm Ryan Poppy for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. The headlines from Washington of the last couple of days have been about allegations of sexual misconduct regarding Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and the possible dismissal of Rod Rosenstein. You might have missed that President Trump just approved an historic budget for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Leo Shane reports for the Military Times. Leo, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for the invite. How much money did the president sign off on for the Department of Veterans Affairs? Yeah, this budget in total is over $200 billion. About uh, $85 billion of that is discretionary program funding, and the rest of it is mandatory benefits. But it's the, it's the largest VA budget we've ever had. Um, and that $200 billion number is one that lawmakers have really been eyeing for a number of years, saying, you know, this is a, this is a budget that just keeps growing, um, not out of control, but, but very rapidly. And once it, once it gets over that, we've really got to start to make some tough decisions about how much we're spending and are we spending it efficiently enough. So the largest VA budget we've ever had, but how does this compare numbers-wise to funding for the VA during past presidencies? It's it's really grown substantially since uh, September 2001. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the entire budget back then was around 49 billion dollars. Uh, we're we're over uh, just about four times uh, that amount um, over the over the span of of these wars. Um, but we've seen steady increases each year. It's not like this is all coming up uh, just just in the last few years. This is about a a six percent increase from last year. The Obama administration saw. Five and six percent increases just about every year. Mm. Um, you know, it's a recognition not just of the troops coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, but some overdue services and some overdue benefits for the Vietnam generation, for the Korean War veterans. Um, you know, a lot more knowledge about some of the the wounds of war, like traumatic brain injury and post traumatic stress disorder. Um, so that means more more medical treatment, mm-hmm. uh, cost medical treatment golf, and and the cost of of uh, benefits for these folks, uh, you know, permanent disability benefits, folks who maybe came back from Vietnam and, and weren't initially diagnosed with certain illnesses uh, like like TBI uh, are now getting compensation for that. So uh, taking care of these recent veterans, uh, but any other specific initiatives that uh, new initiatives maybe that money will be going towards? Yeah, this this seemed like it was going to be a pretty easy budget to uh, to take care of. Um, but it got a little, it got stalled for a few months over fighting over the VA Mission Act. And this is a, this is legislation that was passed at the beginning of the summer that is going to overhaul community care. I'm mm-hmm. sure a lot of your listeners have heard this fight over whether or not veterans should be able to go in their community and get the, the government to pay for it as opposed to having to go to, to VA hospitals. Um, there's, there's money associated with that, and there's a gap of about $1.75 billion that needed to be filled in. Um, and uh, Republicans and Democrats on the Hill fought over how to do that. 
uh, the solution they came to for now is just to uh, to move some money around and to cover the gap. But we heard from quite a few Democrats saying, look, when we come to the VA budget next year, there's going to be an even bigger gap. There's going to be a gap of 6 to $8 billion, and we're going to have to make some tough choices about are we just going to increase the budget? Are we going to raise taxes? Are we going to cut other services? How are we going to pay for this, or is mm-hmm. the VA budget just going to keep growing? You know, a lot of people uh, haven't paid as close attention to this as you have, but they have heard, I'm sure, about a lot of the challenges that have faced the VA, especially in recent years. Where are we at with that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's another interesting time for VA. There's a lot of metrics that are positive. Um, wait times are down at VA hospitals. The, the overall satisfaction when veterans can get care is pretty high up. And President Trump has quite a few accomplishments to to tout in the VA sphere, including uh, new accountability legislation that gets rid of some underperforming employees quicker, um, and and you know this this big budget increase. But we saw earlier this year the VA secretary was fired over uh, political infighting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of uncertainty around it. So I think the the public perception and, and you know the perception of the veterans community is still a lot of wariness about whether or not this is a department that is headed in the right direction, that is really reformed and fixed and getting towards where it needs to be. Um, you know, mixed mixed bag when you're looking at those two very different messages. Although for President Trump himself, you know, he, his message from very early on has been, um, you know, very pro-military, pro-veteran, and, and, and this certainly fits with uh, with the message that he wants to, to send supporters. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he touted this, uh, this budget as, as another win, keeping his promise. Uh, as I said, the Obama administration had similar increases, if not a little bit bigger some years. Um, but this, you know, veterans funding is one of those issues that when it comes to it, it's very difficult to, uh, for, for lawmakers to say no. It's tough for them to say we need to be stingier with money for veterans when you've got a group of folks who have sacrificed overseas who are, who are facing the consequences of that. So, um, so that's the, that's the tough, uh, tough arguments there. Are there places to, to cut waste? Are there places to be more efficient? But how do we do it without making it look like we're cheating veterans out of their benefits? Leo Shane covers Congress, Veterans Affairs, and the White House for the Military Times. Leo, thanks again. Anytime. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where Horn Frog faculty strive to be a force for the greater good. By political science professor Adam Schiffer, who explores media bias and its impact on American politics. TCU, lead on. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogle with a roundup of news from across the state. The Dallas Police Department has fired the white officer facing manslaughter charges for killing a black man in his own apartment. Amber Geiger claims when she shot Botham Jean on September 6, she believed he was an intruder in her apartment. That's a claim the attorneys for Jean's family have been questioning. One of those lawyers is Daryl Washington, and he told WFAA Jean's family is happy Geiger was fired. But we really would have hoped that this would have been something that would have happened happened uh, a week ago or so. Jean's family buried him in his native St. Lucia Monday. 
A new report finds 13% of Texans between the ages of 18 and 24 years old are parents, and nearly two-thirds of their children live in low-income families. That's according to a new report from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Frances Devinney is with the Center for Public Policy Priorities, a progressive think tank that worked on the report. She says while people want to support young children, that isn't always the case for young parents. A lot of policies actually leave out this particular group of young parents. Take, for example, the federal earned income tax credit that benefits workers with low to moderate incomes. To qualify, you need to be at least 25 years old. By definition, parents who are between ages of 18 and 24 aren't eligible for one of the greatest opportunities to help pull people out of poverty that we have in this country. The report also found that only 11 percent of young parents in Texas have an associate's degree or higher. Here's a story that's a little bananas, or dare I say, B-A-N-A-N-A-S. At the end of last week, Texas prison authorities went to Ports America and Freeport to pick up a donated shipment of bananas. Texas Department of Criminal Justice spokesperson Jeremy Diesel says this is a pretty typical occurrence. Freeport reached out to TDCJ and suggested that they had a couple of pallets of bananas that had gotten too ripe, that they were interested in donating. That's something that's a fairly common practice, whether it's to our system that has a significant food service area or food banks. Diesel says, in a way, it was good TDCJ officials got the call because they're trained to search for contraband. And when they went to pick up the boxes this past Friday, they noticed something was wrong. One of the boxes just didn't seem quite right, seemed a little bit too large, so they cut the straps on the bananas and took that box off, opened up that box and moved some of the bananas around and saw a package with a white powdery substance inside and immediately contacted customs authorities. It turned out to be 540 packages of cocaine worth an estimated $18 million or so. Federal authorities are now investigating. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on what approved forms of photo ID they can bring to the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm Laura Rice, in for David Brown. Sonora is a place most people only encounter on their way someplace else. It's located along Interstate 10, 170 miles west of San Antonio and nearly 400 miles east of El Paso. The town of about 3,000 is the kind of place that's rarely in the news. But like a lot of other things in Sonora, that changed on Friday with an unexpected and catastrophic flood. The Texas Standard's Michael Marks reports. It's almost 6 p.m. on Monday evening in Sonora, and people are gathering at the high school football stadium. The scene looks pretty normal for a weeknight at Bronco Stadium. Parents in the stands, lots of people dressed in red, the school's color, and little kids running underneath the bleachers. But they're not here for a football game. They're here to regroup after a flood, the likes of which they'd never seen before. And the Red Cross is here. They will start casework on Wednesday. Early Friday afternoon, water started to spill over the draws that run through the town. These are branches of the Devil's River that are normally dry, but the area had received lots of rain this month. The ground was saturated. Around 2 o'clock, water started to fill the streets of a neighborhood near the center of town. Art Fuentes is Sonora's police chief. It was just uh, so rapidly upon us that it was just, just unbelievable. Fuentes recently bought a house in the neighborhood where most of the flooding occurred. The water rose fast, and when he realized what was happening, 
He went home to get his dogs, Rosie and Bandit. Then he started going door to door to help his neighbors as the area filled up with water. He and the other five officers on Sonora's police force pulled dozens of people from their homes and out of harm's way, with some help from private citizens, too. There was a family and had, uh, had an infant in there, and the water was already in their house. And there was a guy who showed up on a jet ski, and uh, the officer told him, you know, don't, don't risk it. And that guy goes, I'm going to go over there and get that baby out. And the officer said, well, I'm not seeing you by yourself. So he basically took his gun belt off, whatever, jumped on the back of that jet ski and was able to go up to the house and grab that baby to get that baby out of the house. And we, you know, there's countless stories like that. The flood caused no fatalities, but there was plenty of property damage, including at Fuentes' home. His house had over two feet of water in it, and he and his wife lost most of their belongings. City officials estimate that the flood affected a little over 200 of Sonora's homes, almost 15 percent of the town. Many of those affected are low income, and few had flood insurance. After all, no one remembers this area ever flooding before. Dora Mata lives in a pink split-level house with her 88-year-old mother, Adelina. Adelina's husband built the house in the 60s. Together they raised eight children here, including Dora. Inside, box vans run at full blast to dry out photographs and other mementos. Uh, we lost all our furniture that was here, all our furniture. And so, you know, we didn't think it was going to come that, this high because it's never come that high. Officials are telling people that anything the water touched that can't be completely sanitized needs to be thrown away. The water that flowed through people's homes had raw sewage in it, as well as chemicals that had been sprayed onto surrounding farms and ranches. Some houses that were inundated with water will need to be completely gutted. Some will even be demolished, with the owners unlikely to return. Others will need less drastic repairs. Much of the flooring, drywall, and insulation has already been ripped out in Mata's house. But she plans to stay. This house, like I said, belongs to my dad, and this is a lot of memories for us. And we try, we're going to try to fix it as much as we can and, you know, livable for us. There's a steady stream of trailers leading out of Mata's neighborhood loaded with insulation, carpet, appliances, and anything else the water ruined. They go to a field next to the Sutton County 4-H and Civic Center, which has been converted into a makeshift dump for flood debris. The piles are enormous. Some of them tower over the tractors volunteers are using to add to them. For many, it's a difficult sight. But inside the center, it's a different story. The center's been converted into a resource center for flood victims, thanks in large part to Tammy Fisher. She's a natural fit for this kind of thing. I'm a good coordinator, and I'm bossy, and I know everybody in town. Fisher's a fifth-generation Sonoran who practices law here and works on her family's ranch. She set up shop at the Civic Center on Saturday morning and has spent almost every hour there since. Volunteers there connect victims with resources, cook meals for hundreds, and help distribute donations. We have third, fourth, fifth generation people that are living in their grandparents' houses, that their houses were destroyed. They've lost all their memories. They've lost everything. Um, and this town is just coming around them like, like nothing I've ever seen before. According to Fisher, what those folks really need now are hands to help rebuild and cash. It's unclear whether the town will qualify for federal assistance, but Governor Abbott signed a disaster declaration for Sonora on Monday, which will give the area access to state resources. The San Angelo Area Foundation has set up a fund to finance repairs. That will help, but it will take a long time before things get back to normal. 
In Sonora, I'm Michael Marks for the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. Trail is a network of 73 trails that we have that cover 592 miles of Texas rivers all over the state. Texas has more than 200,000 miles of rivers, creeks, and streams, but a lot of the riverside property is privately owned. Actually, only 5% of Texas is publicly accessible or a public resource. So part of Texas Paddling Trails is to make it easier for people to access, you know, this public resource that in some cases is actually kind of hard to get to. Most of them are beginner friendly and family friendly. Um, there's not gonna be a lot of like whitewater rafting, but there are riffles and um, some places where more experienced paddlers you know, can have an exhilarating and exciting time too. And uh, our website, we have the whole list of inland trails and coastal trails. A lot of them are located within county and city parks and state parks as well. Uh, so they're pretty close to public facilities. Not a lot of them are out in remote locations where you're gonna have to be wrangling your own equipment and trying to figure out pick up and take out. Um, it's all kind of been thought through so that anyone who wants to access a Texas river and wants to explore Texas rivers uh, can easily do so. And we have the resources available to make it as easy as possible for them. You know, hiking and biking and all these outdoor activities are extremely fun, but there's something very special about experiencing a river on the river. Our paddling trails, they're in East Texas on Caddo Lake under the big cypress trees. They're there in Central Texas in hill country rivers. They're down in South Texas in, you know, desert environments that have these kind of aquatic oases in the middle of them. And, you know, we encourage everyone to get out and explore Texas. This is our home. So, you know, getting to know all the different places and all the cool spots that Texas has uh, is really important. And we want to encourage people to use Texas paddling trails as one of them. I'm Aubrey Buzek with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, and you're listening to the Texas Standard. And we're at 42 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Over the next few months, it's very likely we will resume conversations about reproductive health, both in Texas and in Mexico. Texas's 2019 legislative session starts in January. The new president of Mexico will be sworn in in December. Mexico's new president-elect could change the messaging over access to birth control. The Texas Standard's Joy Diaz reports on how Mexico's birth control policy has changed over the last five decades. Let's start 50 years ago when the United Nations declared family planning as a human right. Mexico emitió su voto favorable 
Mexico's UN representative Antonio Martinez Baez said that his country voted in favor of the resolution and not only in favor, but with deep conviction in the hopes that women could achieve full equality under the law and in every facet of life. Mexico took that UN resolution to heart. Yes, yes, yes. My grandmother had 13 children, and my mother had four, and I don't have any. Gabriela Rivera is an OBGYN in Mexico City. She's also with the United Nations Population Office in Mexico. The story of the women in her family is like a mirror image of the country, where the birth rate has dropped dramatically. Let's look at birth rates in the 1960s. While women in developed nations like the U.S. were on average giving birth to four kids, the average woman in Mexico was giving birth to seven. Today, U.N. data puts the average woman in the U.S. and in Mexico virtually tied, giving birth to about two kids. In addition to that 1968 UN resolution, in 1974, Mexico amended its constitution to give people the right to decide when and if they want children and how many they want. Article 4 of the constitution, the Mexican constitution, has been changed. The new law worked to counter cultural forces that had led to large families with lots of kids. One major influence being the Catholic Church. The Church's message was basically, get married and have as many children as the Lord gives you. The Constitutional Amendment gave Mexicans the right to decide on family size. Next, the country created an Office of Population. Its mission was to manage population growth to ultimately improve the country's economic development. The office launched a multimedia campaign, and in one commercial from the 1970s, celebrities talked about how overpopulation led to fewer resources for all. The message was clear. Birth control was key to a better life. But since Mexico has the highest percentage of Catholics in Latin America, for the pro-birth control message to take hold, the government needed to make birth control not only legal, but easy to get. Access to family planning is for free. Even if they have no health insurance, they can get it for free. Vasectomies are free. Condoms are free. The pill is free. IUDs are free. So, the birth rate in Mexico dropped, and the economy did improve. 47% of households in Mexico are now considered middle class. Access to free birth control has also reduced mommy and baby deaths. Today, the maternal mortality rate in Mexico is on the decline. But along the way, politics changed, and so did birth control. That's Vicente Fox. He became Mexico's 55th president in 2000. And before him, presidents in Mexico had never spoken openly about their faith. Fox, on the other hand, let everyone know he was a devout Catholic. Reproductive health researcher Manuel Santoyo 
from the National Autonomous University in Mexico, says the Fox administration and the one right after adhered to the Catholic belief that most birth control methods are sinful. What I can say about those administrations is that they're extremely to the right, extremely conservative, and they stopped educating people about their sexual and reproductive rights. They stopped educating people about ways to prevent pregnancies. Now, teen pregnancies in Mexico are on the rise. And to combat that, once again, the government turned to an education campaign using the media. President Enrique Peña Nieto's administration released a new series of commercials targeted at teens, with euphemistic slogans such as If you're headed to the party, bring some balloons. Condoms and other forms of contraceptives are now widely available not only in health clinics, but also in schools and even at food banks. There's a new leader in Mexico, and healthcare watchers and reproductive rights advocates are wondering what President-elect Andrés Manuel López Obrador will do next. In Austin, I'm Joy Diaz for The Texas Standard. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm Laura Rice, in for David Brown. City officials in Laredo are in between what you might call a wall and a hard place. At issue is a large piece of city-owned land, 934 acres in Starr County. It's land that Congress this year set aside money for building more border fencing. The feds want the right to enter the property in order to do some land surveying and testing for a future wall. The Laredo City Council isn't so sure they want to grant that access, but what happens if they don't? Julia Wallace has been following this for the Laredo Morning Times. Julia, good to talk with you. You too, thanks. Give me a quick timeline of this. When did a representative of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Texas come to the Laredo City Council asking for access to the land? So that was last Monday. Mm. Pretty recent then. So is this when the debate over how Laredo would react to this really got started or had it been kind of part of the conversation before then? Yeah, I've actually, this debate uh, heated up a, a while ago, at least at least a year ago. I've heard, I think, from almost every single elected official on this issue and in one way or another before this this particular conversation even happened. And um, I have yet to hear any local officials here say that, that they are pro-border wall. So there was a, a vote that they took just recently. What happened there and, and what were they deciding? Right. So they were they were voting on the uh, the U.S. government's right to entry enter the property um, in order to conduct surveys and do some core testing for what could be a future wall or fence there. Mm -hmm. And uh, city council's vote was not having to do with construction of this fence. It was just about allowing the government in to do these surveys. And uh, it did not pass because there were not enough people there um, who voted in favor. I see. So how quickly does the city council need to make a decision on this? 
Well, they, um, it sounds like if they don't, the federal government will go ahead and file a, a, a right to, of taking in the, in the courts in the first place. So um, even if they don't take a vote again, I think the U.S. government will be moving forward. Interesting. And so uh, the this filing that the government could uh, could issue very soon would would mean what the city would need to pay lawyers and spend time to 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 fight that issue. Is that what would happen? I think so. So that was the that was kind of the reasoning behind the the U.S. uh, the deputy deputy civil chief for the U.S. attorney's office. He was kind of arguing that um, if the city wants to fight this issue now is probably not the best time. Um, that they should they should fight it later on when the, the we're actually in the construction phase for the project, um, and I think that's that's I've talked to Councilwoman Nellie Vielma, who was the one who voted against the motion not to grant them the right of entry, mm. and she said the reason she did that is because um, she didn't want to waste taxpayer money on on fighting something that a you know a federal judge is probably going to end up granting the government regardless interesting so I, I understand you write that the the city's actually going through the same process as private landowners do you think though that city leaders are feeling a, a different sort of pressure here as far as you know what they decide i would assume so i i know that this land is not in the city of laredo it's mm. it's pretty far away down in the valley um but the optics of uh you know city of laredo land being fenced off is not good, especially for for the leaders here who are just not not in favor of building a wall. Um, So they have they have the public to account for, not just themselves as landowners. Right. But I guess the sticky situation is, you know, fight this and and use taxpayer monies or, you know, have the optics of 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 allowing the feds in. Uh, It it really is a, a situation I guess they're they're trying to deal with right now. Exactly. That's the the main crux of the issue right there. Julia Wallace reports on city and county government for the Laredo Morning Times. Julia, thank you again. Thanks so much. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. Back in the studio with me now, keeping me company, KUT editor Wells Dunbar. (laughs) What are you seeing out there on social media? Oh, man, where to start? A lot going on, a lot going on. But So let's start with this one. I'm sure you've probably seen this on Twitter. Ted Cruz and his wife Heidi were heckled over the junior senator's support of Brett Kavanaugh, and it's trending on Twitter. Mm. That's because there's a video, a video of the clash tweeted out. Basically, what happened here is that protesters went inside the restaurant that Ted Cruz and his wife Heidi uh, were dining at, chanting and drowning out the Cruz's dinner. One protester implores the senator to believe survivors when it comes to casting his vote on mm-hmm. the Kavanaugh confirmation. Separately, that hashtag believe survivors is trending today in relation to the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination. On our Facebook page, people divided on uh, basically the, I guess, uh, decorum, you could say, of uh, such a protest. Uh, Several people voicing complaints similar to this comment from Tyler Milloy. Tyler writes that the senator has had zero town halls. Try to contact his office like thousands of us have over the past five years and see what you get. Crickets. Out in public is the only place that we, the voters, have a chance to make an opportunity to get a word into him. Uh, meanwhile, Laura, he does have his defenders in this instance, including mm-hmm. a one Beto O'Rourke. Oh, you may really? have heard of this guy. Yeah. That's yeah. an interesting defender, yeah. <laughs> Running for uh, the Senate seat occupied by Ted Cruz. Beto O'Rourke tweeted, Not right that Senator Cruz and his wife Heidi were surrounded and forced to leave a restaurant last night because of protesters. The Cruz family should be treated with 
respect. Mm. I guess that's kind of going back to the uh, the sort of uh, Beto uh, uh, O'Rourke campaign uh, opera, modus operandi of killing them with kindness, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. would seem. Uh, and, and he's got his, his supporters there as well, also on our Facebook page. Kenneth Shilkin says, I agree with Beto's comment. Being nasty does not promote solutions. So folks divided on the efficacy of such protest, I guess you could say there, yeah. Laura. More news, international news. President Donald Trump at the United Nations today. Lots of people focusing on his hawkish rhetoric regarding Iran, but also lots of people taking note of this uh, moment at the beginning of the speech. Uh, here, helpfully encapsulated by PBS NewsHour, they quote the president oh, on that. Twitter thusly. Yes, he says, in less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. And the NewsHour notes that the audience laughed. The president responds, didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. So really, yeah. You know, it's interesting to, you know, we hear him so many times at at these rallies, you know, where he's surrounded by supporters. That's really where he loves to to make his his speeches and to to hit on topics that he has been, um, you know, hitting on Mm -hmm. for for a long time as president and and before he was president. So it is interesting to hear him, uh, you know, in front of a different audience, an audience that is maybe not supporters so yeah, decidedly yeah. different audience and i think he even sort of uh, uh never mind moving right along <laughs> another hashtag trending national voter registration day good reminder for all y'all out there sandra in austin tweets that a friendly reminder there are only two weeks left to register to vote in texas okay check to make sure that you're still registered update your info or sign up this election is so dang important do it so voter registration day is two weeks before voter registration needs to be in before just to make to sure in. we make all sure get registered give to vote. it enough time to okay. get there in the post Makes office sense. box just a few stories we're watching again you can go to our facebook page and our twitter presence for more on these more on the internal reporting about kut and texas standard that we alluded to earlier lots of stuff going on laura lots of stuff happening lots of stuff and we are watching it on social media and we love to hear what you are thinking about all of us all of it and and us you can let us know what you think about us too and uh, we will see you back here tomorrow thank you so much for joining us Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Wooldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Public Radio International.